The Ethereum ecosystem is investing VC money to build stuff in the internal system. And that's generally manifested as a stock or a token. In the external world, Bitcoin is actually manifesting as physical representations of what sound money achieves. And I think that's a really important distinction. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for dedicating part of your day to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week, we're joined by James Check, a.k.a. Checkmate, and holy crap, was this a substantive chat. If you don't know Checkmate, he's the lead on-chain analyst at Glassnode, the world leader in on-chain and financial data for Bitcoin and digital assets. We begin this chat by getting an update from James on his analysis of the current Bitcoin market. Might the bottom be in or is there more pain? We then get deep into exploring decentralized finance, proof of stake, and Ethereum, spending time highlighting the Bitcoin protocol's uniqueness amidst a sea of shitcoins and cryptocurrencies moving towards more centralization and capture. In our view, grokking the uniqueness of the Bitcoin protocol requires a genuine and fair assessment of its competitors and imitators, straw man avoidance, if you will. Few demonstrate more humility and intellectual responsibility in this regard than Checkmate. If you want to get the most out of this show, a couple phenomenal primer resources that set the stage for this discussion include Checkmate's lecture, Why the Ethereum Merge is a Monumental Blunder, and Lynn Alden's recent long-form essay, The Problems with DeFi and Crypto. Both of these pieces will be linked down in the show notes. Josh and myself, Dan, often get asked why we use and recommend the cold card. We like this device because it is simple to use, but not too simple to use. If you're intelligent enough to follow simple directions, you can learn to use this device in its simplest configuration. However, it is not dangerously easy. Custody of something this pristine should not be taken lightly. When you teach someone to drive a car, they don't need to be a mechanic, but they should at least know how to pop the hood, pull a dipstick, and change a tire. Those that self-custody with no fucking clue what's actually happening are vulnerable to mistakes and attacks. Setting up and using a cold card ensures the user grasps the basics of what Bitcoin self-custody actually is. You can use promo code BCB, that's BCB for a discount on the cold card, and all CoinKite products can be found at our affiliate link, also down in the show notes. Now, sit back, relax, and get out the Pepto-Bismol, because I'm warning you, this conversation gets spicy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Well, Josh, uh, another another guest from the land down under here, Checkmate, Checkmate. joins us from Australia. Needless to say, uh, our predicaments are quite different. Uh, our day's winding down. Your week's just firing up. Um, it's literally like, what is it, eight degrees outside? Wind, wind chill might even be lower here, Josh, and yeah, he's kite surfing. So uh, fuck you, Checkmate, because G'day, guys. I, wish, yeah. <laughs> I wish we were in your location. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's, there's a trade-off because the uh, the Football World Cup is on at 2 a.m. So, you know, that's just not happening. So it's, uh, it's a trade-off. 
hey, by the way, this is going to get out the exact day we're recording this. Do not say a word on the World Cup. Here's the here's what happened today. I woke up. My wife was like, we're going to church. We're doing the Christmas Carol church thing. So recorded the World Cup, came home, watched the first half, second half, second half just ended with where I'm at in this recording. And that do not you don't you dare tell me what happened because what a game so far. Wow. On that note, so being being the poor bugger here in Australia, I missed all mo- pretty much all the games, right? The only ones you could see is 9 p.m. and 6 p.m. Oh, sorry, 6 a.m. during the, um, the early rounds, none of the finals. And the problem is every time you go to a streaming service so I can go and watch it, the bloody tile is the score. So you go there to watch the game and they give it away the second you try to watch it. It just stinks. Shame. Oh, trying to record this stuff and watch it later is is treacherous it's like trying to tiptoe around lava like i'm sitting at church like who's maybe watching the game i can't listen to that person when do i need to plug the ears you know you're it's it's a game of hot potato to try to keep the secret and i will say football or soccer in particular it completely destroys everything like most sports when you find out it it basically ruins it but in this particular game, in my humble opinion, when you know the result, it's like I, I might as well not even watch it anymore. So, no, I agree. I, I have the same thing with MMA. As soon as you see like there's, yeah. a, there's a good fight, um, th- however, you can go and rewatch it because the all the skill and everything involved. But I agree, if you're going to sit there for 90 to 120 minutes and you already yeah. know because it's a low scoring game, that's exactly. the difference. And the second that that edge gets put in, it's it's over. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to piss a lot of people off with this comment, but I mean, let's be honest. Watching football is pretty fucking boring for the most part. Not uh, not my cup of tea, honestly. Um, one thing I will say is that this World Cup in particular, there was a lot less diving. At least the matches that I saw, people going down and bloody clutching their ankles. Um, that was a nice change because there's been some World Cups where it's just like, it's ruthless. You just you can't oh, yeah. watch it. It's unwatchable. What was that like? 2018, where the whole joke was like na- like doing the Neymar, just like going oh. down and holding the ankles. Yeah. yeah. It was good, actually. The um, that that particular season, that World Cup, twenty eighteen, um, we'd just moved to London for two years, and you don't know anyone. There's nothing to do, but the World Cup was on, and that gave you like a reason to go to the pub, and it just was the great thing to break you into a brand new country because obviously it goes nuts over there. Yeah, I think in some ways, like this sporting event makes us Americans realize how insulated we are. Oh, totally. Like we're sitting around here saying, like, who cares about this? This is like so far and away the biggest sporting event that happens ever. It's the world game. And the whole world rallies around it. And yeah. then we're just like living in our own bubble. What's interesting about this year too, even though I don't watch it much, this is the first this is the first World Cup I've noticed actually being on TV in the US. I haven't actually, it's so little watched here that four years ago, wouldn't have noticed it. And before that, never even really paid attention to it. But it's actually on, you know, regular mainstream tv here this year which is interesting it's coming around the the thing i find quite interesting about some american sports is most of your sports are very strategic plays right you've got timeouts in basketball you've got um, nfl which is like a you know slow strategic war game lots of american sports have timeouts breaks um time to process and like plan the next move whereas for things like football that you know we just whack on some extra time at the end of the match and it's it's just kind of free-flowing that's definitely a big difference I've noticed. It is. I, I actually have thought about this a lot. So the sport that I understand the best technically is basketball. I actually, back in college, I called basketball on the radio where I went to school. 
basketball is a great game. I have a huge affinity for it, but it's it's has some massive design flaws that sports like football, aka soccer and hockey, don't have. And that's the game slows down as it comes to a conclusion. The last 30 seconds is as long as the rest of the game. It's a massive problem. Like you get to the end of the game when the tension's the highest and and it, and the game completely locks up and slows down. Then you then you switch over to American football, 80% of the game there's not even a play going. So it is one thing I appreciate about the flow and the style of both soccer, football and and hockey and the two sports do have actually a lot of parallels. Interesting. No, no, I've noticed that. We went to a basketball game. We're in Miami for the conference. And uh, the last 30 seconds just goes forever. There's Ever. so many stoppages. Oh. It's so strategic. And they get the final shots in. It's, it's, it is very interesting like that. Yeah. Hey, did we hear that you're, uh, you're on vacation kite surfing? Is that correct? Yeah, that's my, uh, that's my addiction. So when I'm not looking at uh, on-chain analytics and Bitcoin, I'm trying <laughs> to half kill myself in the wind and the waves. How, how much time did that take you to get sufficient that to actually be able to get up and do it because it looks incredibly difficult i've never tried it it looks like a ton of fun once you get it but it's got to be a pain in the ass learning curve yeah it, it, it's definitely a process and um the, the thing that i certainly enjoyed about it is how personal it is because it's just you your equipment and the weather right so you're 75 percent in control 25 percent up to the whim of what whatever wants to happen um so for my first season i just flew the kite right so just learned the power learned how to you know, you pick yourself up on the beach and you can you can get some serious, serious height with it. But the idea is that you get to the point where you don't have to look at the kite. You can just feel the power. So mm-hmm. you know where it is. You know how much tension you need to put um, and you know what the kite's doing. Once you include the kite and the board and then the waves, you've suddenly got something that's pulling you in one direction, the waves which are pushing you in another direction, and then your board, which is an anchor. As soon as it goes underwater, it's pulling you somewhere else. So the, the whole dynamic of it, yeah, the whole dynamic of it is quite challenging. So the first season um, was just flying. Second season was um, you do the walk of shame, which is where you can't go upwind. You can only go downwind. So basically you go out and you go like 600 meters down the beach. And then you've got to walk back with the kite, fighting it against the wind the whole way. You do one run and you're done. But yeah. there is there is a point in time. And for me, you just kind of hit that, that aha moment. And for me, it was putting the shoulders back. As soon as you put the shoulders back and you let the kite carry you, suddenly my board just starts edging up wind and then it's just bang, away you go. So once you hit that point, which for me was two seasons in, um, it changes everything. But the the learning curve is enough to throw most people off. Giving up control to get control. That's true of exactly. the techni- technicalities of so many different sports and it's completely counterintuitive. Isn't it? Yeah, You have to just let yourself ease into it. Yeah, I can imagine you can get yourself in some real trouble if you cut a good gust of wind and you're just going out there. I've um, the, yeah, I've had one. So you change your kite size depending on both your weight, but also how how much the wind's blowing, um, or also different directions and things like that. But um, I've got a, a very light wind kite, and it's a it's a huge mother. It's like driving a truck, uh, fifteen square meters. The things as wide as most rooms that you'll be in, uh, probably wider. Anyway, um, I was out there on a beautiful light wind day, having a great 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 run and then the wind just went up like seven or eight knots in a very short span of time and i'm out in the water and man i fought this thing back in and i got to the beach finally got the kite down i just rolled over i I couldn't move for like half an hour it was a true survival instinct move damn james for people that don't know you who are you uh what do you do for a living 
Yeah, so uh, I used to be, uh, probably this time two years ago, I used to design tunnels, mines, um, basically anything engineering underground. Um, so my background's in civil engineering, um, worked in uh, mostly in Sydney, but for most of the jobs uh, that I actually ran were all over the world. So um, I, you know, I've kind of done stuff with earthquake engineering, I've done stuff with tunnels, with mines, basements, all that kind of thing. So that's my, my prehistory. Um, I discovered Bitcoin in, well, I discovered the space in 2018 and uh, lost many small fortunes in, in 2018. <laughs> Finally read the Bitcoin white paper in, uh, in 2019 after the capitulation. I just seen everything go to zero five times. Um, then I finally, it just clicked. And there was something about markets that always fascinated me, um, particularly the way that human psychology plays into it. Um, and I'll often describe the price chart as human fear and greed plotted against time because it's all mm -hmm. the pain, all the ups and the downs um, plotted against time. Anyway, so um, started to get into the, uh, you know, listening to all the podcast circuit and understanding what Bitcoin and economics and how it all functions and works. My actual orange pill moment, um, I'm going to give to uh, Pete McCormick on uh, his session. His, um, he did a series on Mt. Gox. And what was great about that is way back in 2013, you start hearing about all these guys that were going to fight tooth and nail for any tactic they could possibly muster to just get some kind of control over that, that business and those coins. And you start to realize the technical element of it and why are people fighting over this thing when it's worthless back then, right? It's not worth anything. And people are willing to fight for it for their, their whole life. So you start to think, all right, there's something here. Um, anyway, so then I discovered on-chain analytics, which was really starting to be born in 2018. Mm. Um, things like the Realize Cap started coming out. And what that blended was my understanding or my appreciation of markets and humans, um, my engineering background, which is data and models, and then also converting all of that into, you know, take the engineering model, explaining it to a layman. And all of this kind of culminated as we came into uh, February 21. Um, which is where there was a job opening for, for Glassnode and uh, who's you know basically the leading particularly for Bitcoin on-chain analytics and uh, I just basically took a punt right um, I put in my uh, my resume as a as a data scientist because I taught myself Python I'm not a data scientist um, put in my resume but it was mostly about I, I understand what on-chain analytics is I've been teaching it for two years at a time when on-chain analytics is two years old yep. so I've kind of been there for since the genesis of the field and uh, just learning along the way. And what I found is that people want to understand this thing. And uh, to me, that, the rest is pretty much history. It's been about helping people understand on-chain analytics, um, understand the edge it can give you. And particularly, um, it goes globally, right? There's people all around the world. Um, I mean, I saw a, a video the other day um, from Vietnam where they teach the newsletter that we write each week in like a classroom full of people. And you see this thing, you're like, I oh, mean, that's just, it's, it's unreal. And these guys are training to be analysts so they can leave Vietnam and go work in the West and then send money back home. And you look at that and it's like that right there. That's why I do it. Yeah. There is a lot to be said about faking it till you make it, as you kind of imparted there. We feel like we've been doing that with this podcast since its inception and uh, maybe less faking, more making these days, but it's hard to say. Totally. Uh, I'm curious, though, because of your analysis background, because of that idea, I wonder if uh, technical analysis ever appealed to you. It's kind of been along the same vein. It's maybe a lot more ancient, but has that been a topic that's interested you and how much have you followed or traded that way? 
Yeah, so I definitely, um, I definitely learned a lot about TA, particularly 2018 and 19. Um, I used to trade a lot more back then. Um, I can do it, but what I found with actually trading is, uh, and particularly with the, with the work I'm doing at the moment, um, the trading, I find it takes your mind away from everything else. You have to be focused so much on the trade to do it well, and that's fine. But what it means is I, I don't have mental capacity to do all the other stuff that I have to do. So what I found is that I'm much better at actually having a clear mind, stacking stats, and essentially using my mind for the analytical side to help other people do that, whilst also having appreciation for it. Now, TA in terms of its design is kind of the same thing in principle. You're charting human psychology, fear, and greed against time, and you're looking for previous behaviors. There's a reason why the 1920s, you can look at a price chart and it looks like the same price chart we have now, right? You've seen these patterns play out over and over again because human be- the markets change, the assets change, the dynamics change, but the human being and the human response is an old ancient monkey brain that keeps doing the exact same thing when given the same stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, and on-chain analytics is essentially that combined with the fundamentals of the blockchain. So the way to think about it is you go, okay, if I'm looking for people capitulating at the bottom, how is that going to show up on chain? And the most logical way is, well, people who literally bought their coins and withdrew them from from an exchange at 50,000 are now selling them at the very bottom during a wick at 17,000. Yes. So you start looking for models and metrics that are helping you describe the human behavior as it would play out on the network. So it combines TA with blockchain fundamentals. I, I think that does a good job of dispelling the haters, which occasionally we are. Like occasionally we fuck with TA on here and even on chain saying like it's astrology for men and all that stuff, which I'm sure you roll your eyes at. But the way you characterize it is totally accurate. And that's when you analyze human behavior, there's an innate recognition that there's no way the conclusions you're going to draw are going to be ironclad or perfect or, totally. or, or get it every time. So when you just when you go back to first principles and say on-chain analysis and technical analysis are a high level zoom out on human behavior it helps people for sure i think cut cut more slack where it's due when things are incorrect or quote unquote wrong right that would be the same yes. as as judging someone for incorrectly judging human behavior instead of it being yeah. some hard science like physics you know and, and, you know, when you look at things, it's actually on-chain. If people say that you can spoof order books and, you know, you see these scam wicks that happen and all that kind of stuff in TA. Um, in order for a whale to, um, you know, fake a whole bunch of capitulation losses, they literally need to have moved coins up at 50,000 and then not moved them again until 17,000. You can't lie. And if you are going to lie, you still have to pay the blockchain fee, right? right? So, so it's one of those things. Exactly. Now, the trade-off is that, and a lot of people also come at me with this, it's like, yeah, but all the trading volume goes on off-chain, right? They, they, they say all the trading volumes in futures and and spot, and, and, and that's not on-chain. It's like, yeah, that, that's that's fine. However, when you look at, a lot of people just look at like the exchange net flow. Oh, look, on net, 10,000 coins flowed in or out. But what they're missing is that, no, 60,000 coins flowed in and 55,000 flowed out. Your net may be five, but there's literally billions of dollars in BTC flowing in and out every single day. And when you look at it, sometimes it's between 30 to 70% of spot volume flowing in and out. Um, and on top of that, we're actually seeing that the, um, I mean, after all the FTX shit show, more people are taking their funds off. And if you think about it, right, there's big trading desks that just got wiped out on FTX. 
And you're going to tell me that they're not going to be pulling their profits off exchanges coming the next run? Absolutely not. Like they are going to be using that on-chain wallet as their self-custody. It'll go through ebbs and waves, but 87, 88% of all coins are off exchange. So, you know, if there's no signal there, I'll eat my hat. I want to ask a zoomed out question and then we'll we'll dive back into on-chain because I know it's going to be the reason for the answer. Fill people in on where you think we're at right now. Generically, I know you've been on record recently as saying you think we're, I think you've even said historically oversold. Start out by the what and then bring us to the how you've reached that conclusion on on where Bitcoin sits today. For sure. Yeah. So again, look, no, no one knows the future and, uh, you know, you got to kind of caveat all this shit painfully um, with, you know, look at the world around you, anything can happen. So th- there is no, there is nothing set in stone. Um, nevertheless, what I generally look at, we're talking about all the, the psychology of things, right? So what I'm looking for to try and form some kind of bottom thesis, right? Re- realistically, what do we actually have? The only thing we have is the historical data, right? And then you must contextualize it. So, you know, let's just put for a moment to the side, um, put aside the macro scope. And so, you know, people are saying, oh, Bitcoin's only existed in an easy monetary policy, blah, blah. Okay, cool. That's fine. Let's put that to the side because that's literally all we have. So now let's just look at what we have and then we'll assess it in the context. What we have um, is when, when you're looking for human psychology, what was the pain threshold that was required in every previous cycle to flush out every remaining seller? And every remaining seller are the four sellers, right? In this season, we've seen all the forced liquidations and the lenders and blah, blah, blah. We see the miners who become four sellers because they just, for some reason, seem not to sell anymore. There. Yep, I say miners, we're definitely there. You look at the short-term speculators, um, go on Google Trends and tell me that we've got any short-term retail coming back in, gone. And <laughs> yeah. then the last one, the last one that's left is the long-term holders, right? The, the hodlers. So even the most steadfast, devout hodler will panic at some point in time. Now, once you've survived two or three seasons um, and two or three cycles, you're good, right? You understand why you're here. Your cost basis is low enough. You don't really care. So- when you start seeing them flushing out, and we've just seen the second largest flush out of long-term holders, people have held their coins for more than five months, people go, that's not a long time. It's like, well, statistically speaking, they are the least likely to spend. So you kind of map back and you look at what are the preconditions that has caused human psychology to reach the pain threshold where it's like, get me the fuck out. And we have all of them, all of them across the board lit up saying, you know, for the, for the most part, the amount of pain in the market right now has put a bottom in in every previous cycle. And the last thing I'll talk about is um, the kind of the resetting of the cost basis. So for example, you guys have been in this market for a while. Um, you don't remember, I don't remember the price of the coin I bought in 2018. It's just, it's just somewhere and I don't care. It's just part of the mix. The coin I bought yesterday, I know exactly the price that I bought it because it's recent history. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that recency bias gets baked in to how people consider the market. So what we've seen very recently, we look at different, we call it the realized price, the average price at which every coin moved. And you can break that down to cohorts, right? We can see the average coin, the average price at which every coin moved, including Satoshi, which is zero. Um, you can see um, of those long-term holders or the hodlers. And you can also see of the short-term holders, people who recently bought. And where we are right now, there's a couple of things that are in play. All of those cost bases have essentially clustered between like, 20 and 22,000. So what does that mean? They diverge during bulls. New buyers are buying the top. Old hands have got coins from 6,000. The market's all over the place, right? These things open up and widen out. As you get to the bottom of a bear, 
Everyone who is going to sell has sold, which revalues the coins lower. Everyone who's stepping in to buy the bottom buys those coins. And what you end up with is with all the cost bases in the same place and the people who just bought have outperformed guys who've been here for, for the long term. So that to me means that the long-term guys are underperforming the guy who just bought. They're mm-hmm. in a whole shitload of pain. And because all the cost bases are in the same price region, the market is now homogenous. There is no, there's no difference because, I mean, who cares if your cost base is 20,000 or 22,000? It's, it's somewhere around 20,000. So as a result, the market has returned to a homogenous base. And when you get to a homogenous base, everyone's the same. Everyone has the same cost basis. If we dunk lower, maybe that means the whole market's going to puke and we do this bear market all over again. But at the same time, every previous time this has happened, for every seller, there's a buyer. And every seller who's revaluing their coins from 50,000 down to 17, some other guy has now got a $17,000 cost basis and he's pretty happy about it. So one of the things you identified there was that these holders of last resort, the guys who will not sell or the people that are in serious pain right now, those are kind of one and the same unless they've been holding for, say, five years or so at this point. Paul Tudor Jones actually cited that as one of the reasons he became interested in Bitcoin yes, because he said, 100%. I think it was something like, I, I can't remember the number like exactly. 80% or something. 83% is what's coming to mind for me. And I think he said 83% of people would not sell. Didn't matter if it went to three grand, 2800 or whatever the low was in 2018, 2019. They just simply didn't sell. And I'm kind of reading from what you're saying here that that's very likely to be we're in that region right now. We're in that 80% of these people are just not selling, they're holding, and they're they're resolved to do that. And even anecdotally, right? I, I've had people who, um, you know, they'll tell asking me whether they should be buying at 60,000. And, um, you know, some of our YouTube comments, right? We put out a video on Glassnode every week and um, YouTube comments are generally very, very good, right? Thanks for the information, blah, blah, blah. We're starting to get ones coming in going, this fucking market just goes down. That's it. I love the content, but I hate this asset. It's all going <laughs> to zero. Like the capitulation comment. You're like, yep. you just sold at 30 cents, didn't you? It, it is totally true that to no coiners and outsiders, like hardcore Bitcoiner behavior is psychopathic. Like it, 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 yeah. it's an extreme word, but I had somebody- I appropriate. I, I, I'm sure we everyone that works in this space gets this question. I got this question yesterday from somebody who said, are you still doing that podcast thing? And, and I didn't like tee off and I'm like, yep, yeah, still doing it. And in the back of my head, I'm like, not only are we still doing it, we've had our biggest months recently in the middle of this bear market. Like we're scaling month over month because people are more hungry for information when the price is cut off 70% back to the Tudor Jones comment, it is very atypical from other markets. It doesn't mean we're right. We could all be we could all be the biggest clowns in the world, theoretically. But interest grows for people that are hungry learners, even when all the euphoria is rinsed from the rest of the market. And it is super atypical from anything else I've paid attention to. Yeah. And like, you know, when we see volatility, people like, oh, you know, is, is you know, for, for Glassnode, are, are you guys having a hard time in, in, uh, as the bear market rolls? It's like, no, volatility is good because people want to understand why, right? Some of our biggest sign up days are when you get these enormous down wicks and people like explain what the hell happened. Um, and that's essentially what we try to do, right? You try to build the tools to be like, right, let's yep. actually explore what were the dynamics that led into it and what are we looking for as we move forward? I've got a question just uh, on this on-chain movements like idea. So Willie Wu is somebody who was very popular in 2021. Uh, Dan and I paid a lot of attention to what he had to say, and he got a lot of things really wrong. 
What do you think? I don't know how much you paid attention to what he was saying or what, you know, the kind of distributions he was making, but do you, can you identify where he maybe had it wrong or what he, what he did wrong there? Just from yeah, your anecdotal a, knowledge of it? No, totally. And look, I, I can't really speak to it because to be honest, I don't pay that much attention to many other analysts because um, similar to the trading, I actually like to just have my own running thesis. Um, so I actually, to be honest, don't know a great deal of what his calls were. Um, but what I will say, at least from my experience, so I, I joined Glassnode in February 2021, which if you can envision yourself, that's post-Elon Candle yeah. um, and we're in the topping formation, yes. right? 50-60K. That's good context. Now, yeah. Exactly. Now, when I go back and look at myself as an analyst, right, I, I've suddenly been dropped in. Uh, I was employee number eight at Glassnode back then, right? So small firm, um, first real analyst who understands what the on-chain side and is now writing reports to help people understand it. Now, at this time, if you think about the world of Bitcoin, the market's mature to the point where we have enormous derivatives. We have leverage. We've got options markets. Um, you've got um, Michael Saylor doing his thing. You've got um, questionable institutional interests, right, in and out. You've got GBTC. Um, you've got an enormous scope of stuff that changed within the last three months. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I get dropped into Glassnode and suddenly I've got all these tools. Now, there's no chance that anyone's going to learn the full scope, right, to the extent to be able to explain what each of our metrics does yep. in a couple of months. So when I go back and look at myself, I got a lot of stuff wrong. One thing I got very, very wrong was that first May decline, right? The sell-off in May um, that I think started this bear market, 2021. So that was my- um, That was a brutal downturn. A, Wait, let's, let's, downturn. let's go on a tangent here because I've heard, I yep. heard you say, Checkmate, that you viewed that as sort of a, I forget how you put it, like a fake out or a, uh, it wasn't a true next pump. The November, the November high. After that original downturn. Go back and explore why you think the bear market really started earlier and then that scammer pump, so to speak, or however you characterize it. For sure. No, totally. And, and look, lots of people are looking at the FTX thing, and I, I saw a couple of comments. Um, people are trying to attribute FTX to why we had the rounded top. Now, the rounded top, in my view, is almost entirely due to the GBTC going into a, a, a discount because that was, I mean, they, they absorbed 660,000 BTC yeah. in a handful of months, right? So that enormous spot buying pressure, suddenly that went wrong. And then also we now know there's lending books and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, um, that rounded top, the peak in on-chain activity. Now, when we talk about what does the peak stand for, I might just describe the whole 2021 phase because I think it's linearly. So the peak in on-chain behavior is essentially when long-term holders are cashing out the hardest. Their most amount of supply is coming from dormant cold storage back into the market. Um, active addresses, transaction counts, the on-chain activity, block space demand, fees generally peaked in January. Everything started dying off. So prices making less and less, but higher highs, right? Slightly declining, but higher highs. And everything about fundamentals was in a massive divergence to the downside. So what does that mean? That means that you have less usage, more supply, and waning demand at a time when price is making higher highs. Mm. Then you overlay GBTC and you're like, right, not good, right? So you look at all those things in context, That's that looks like a top. Now, the sell-off that we had in May, this is essentially where I think there's been two points when my analysis or my where I'd class myself as an analyst changed. Um, when I came in in February, I understood on-chain analytics. I did understand the full scope of, of what we could do with this stuff, plus derivatives, blah, blah, blah. 
So missed that first sell-off, but that's when I start. I mean, I'm spending every day in this thing. Um, as we formed that bottom, May, June, July, that's where I started understanding more about our supply metrics. And there was, you know, the whole supply squeeze narrative. Um, a lot of that actually backtracks to a, a tweet and a report that we put out way before. So um, we were talking about how we're seeing this like changing behavior. The supply is starting to actually go back into dormancy. We're seeing the hodlers have actually stopped selling and you're starting to move into this regime where there's actually buy side going on, right? Now, then we started to rally up towards the November all-time high. Now, the September dip um, quite clearly looked like a dip, but as we pushed to November, what we did not have, and I will, ne- I will never ever make this mistake again, um, I was screaming that there is no on-chain activity supporting the rally. So price is ripping to all-time highs. But there's two things, um, the one that I was banging on about, and then everyone was saying, you know, no, don't worry about it. It's all happening in trading off-chain, right? So I'm looking at this thing, price is at 69000 and the amount of transactions, active addresses, network usage, block space demand, like half what <laughs> it was back in, in at the April wow. peak. And exact, no, massive, massive bearish divergence. I'm looking at this thing being like, I mean, it just doesn't feel right. But everyone's like, but it's all happening off chain. I was like, fuck, what if on chain analytics is actually losing its signal here because it's all happening off chain? Big mistake, big mistake. What mm-hmm. I wasn't focusing on is I got caught up in the hype myself, right? And you realize, hang on a second, no, no, no. The on chain analytics was dead right. Our interpretation was wrong. And I should have trusted my gut. And the second piece, in in hindsight, as I've kind of studied that more, massive bearish divergence both during the first top and then a macro one between the two peaks, that also exists for what we call profitability metrics, right? So if you bought your coins at 10,000, prices at 20,000, you've got 100%. You've got a 2x. That's what the MVRV tracks. Now, the MVRV also had a lower peak. And what that means is that there is less profit in the system than there was back in the April high. How do you have less profit? What is MVRV yep. real quick before you keep moving on? Just so that we're yeah, all so um, MVRV stands for market value, market cap or price divided by realized value. Market okay. value to realized value ratio. Realized value is realized cap, realized price. Gotcha. So what you're looking at there is what's the current price and taking a ratio with when did everyone buy their coins on average, right? So it's like a profit multiplier. Now, if you've got less profit, unrealized profit in the system, even though your price is higher, how the hell does that happen? Because people who had their $6,000 coins just sold them at 60000 So there's literally less profit because more coins have been distributed to a higher price. So on-chain activity, massive bearish divergence. Profitability, massive bearish divergence. All of these things were saying, guys got out. Guys got out in a really, really big way in April. They bought down there at, at um, May, June, July, and then they sold like crazy as we came up to that uh, that second peak. So overall, those were my two big lessons. First lesson, um, obviously just getting thrown in amongst the data back in May, start looking at this data more critically. Um, in the, On the second all-time high, it was, okay, on-chain has not lost signal. People are just interpreting it wrong. Um, and from that point on, basically studying this bear market, which is kind of ironic because I got in in 2018. I was forged in that first bear. This second bear is where I got forged as an analyst, studying how this thing really works, getting real critical about it, and uh, cannot wait for the next bull because that's good. Trying to find the uh, the blow off in the next round is going to be the uh, the fun game. And and here's the thing with that is, back to the previous point, it's it's as unpredictable as human behavior. Like when these markets end, 
It's easy to Monday morning quarterback. Hindsight's always 2020. And and when I look back at like, say, the calls by Willie Wu, who was calling for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I was eating it up like a smorgasbord too. I mean, I was, especially when you hear- Dude, he was saying back it up, back up the truck at like 55 grand, like it's go time. Hardcore plebs are like prepared, but also vulnerable for these environments. Because when you study yes. the magnificence of this protocol and how significant this discovery is, when it starts to skyrocket, there's there's a whole host of hundreds of hours of research and conviction built on real substance that are causing you to filter this new hyped speculative information through what how you perceive the magnificence of this asset. And the truth is... In these environments, they are, when, when it gets frothy like this, they're incredibly speculative. On a brand new asset, most new entrants, right, we're onboarding orders of magnitude, not just percentages of, but orders of magnitude new users. They have no idea what they hold. Mind you, this thing has a totally fixed inelastic supply. Point I'm making is that where this concludes in these hype cycles Anybody knows it ended at 69,000 this last time in that same environment with different inputs. It could have been 169. It could have been 269. And the next time mm -hmm. this happens, we're not going to have any clue either. All I can say is you have to strike some balance between a sense of urgency to get a seat at the table and not completely losing your mind amidst the hype. But that is a tough, yeah. tight wire to walk. And that's part of the reason why it's easy to pick on it right now. But dollar cost averaging makes a lot of sense if you have strong conviction in the potential of this and you just don't want any part in trying to time markets that are virtually untimable. And even further to that, um, you, you mentioned before, um, where, you know, where, where, did, where did analysts like Willie go wrong? Um, and in my view, it's actually fairly simple. I gave price predictions and you'll notice that I <laughs> yeah. don't give price predictions because I don't know and I can't tell you what the price is going to be. I can tell you what it should be and the answer is much higher than where it currently is. Nevertheless, what I think is far more useful for people, but it's not as meme-worthy. This is the thing. It's not as memeable um, when you just you try to explain why things are happening because when you explain why things are happening, which is what on-chain analytics is fantastic for, you understand that the climate and the weather, right? If it's cloudy and you had rain yesterday, is, the, is there a high probability of rain today? Yeah, probably, right? But it doesn't have to rain, but it's much more likely than if it's blazing sunshine. For sure. Right? So, so what you're trying to do is understand what is the macro flow of this thing. And when yeah. you understand the macro flow, particularly for DCAs, you can find periods of time when the old hands are getting out. And this is my favorite thing. In the bull market, Everyone is looking at, or, you know, we've, we've started the bear and people are looking at all the previous data and you'll see metrics that I know are old hands selling, right? Lifespan, coins coming out of dormancy, coming out of cold storage, flows into exchanges. The average punter looks at the metrics that we have and goes, but look, that one goes up during a bull. I'm like, yeah, that's you getting dumped on, sir. Like people look at things going up in the bull, <laughs> totally. but they don't realize that's the exit signal. You have to be the contrarian. You have to be where is the smart money. And the great thing about on-chain analytics is we can see the smart money. They're measured by one thing. How long have you held your coin? Yeah. Right? If you have held your coin a long time in cold storage, I want to follow that guy. I think one of the things that threw us off, I think myself for sure, Dan, probably you as well. We watched this 2017 bull run and it looked, I mean, the setup, the way that it moved, very different from 2021. You had this massive blow off. They went from like 10,000 on like December 10th of that year to like 20,000 seven or eight days later. It was crazy. We had that though. 
people just don't realize it. It was January. January 2021 was that. And we were at 10,000. Next minute, we're at like 40,000 within like a month. Like December to January, that was the blow-off peak. I mean, you have to remember, we came from COVID, 3,800 or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. That was the peak. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get at, though, is that like the way that this thing is going to present itself is very unlikely to look how it did the last time. So 2017 had a very, very you know, um, fast moving top that, you know, peaked out and then shit the bed very quickly. And then 2021, depending on exactly. And then how you, depending on how you look at it, I mean, I can totally subscribe to what you're saying that the the true peak was in the early January, February of 2021. But then this thing, you know, goes down, goes up to 60, goes down to 30, goes up to 69. And I'm thinking, holy shit, you know, we're strapping in, we're ready to go. And boom, it all blows up. So this double top almost, so there's no way to know how things are going to play out in the future. It might more, it might be more like 2017, might be more like 2021, this slow burn. But trying to predict these things is a fool's game, um, in our estimation. And yeah. I, I, I think that your your on-chain metrics are certainly helpful. But I think the DCA is the way that I'm viewing this thing from from here on out because I've made enough large purchases at higher prices where I'm just not playing that game much more. So that's where on-chain analytics really helps is, um, and again, like everything, you need to do a little bit of proof of work. Um, what me and my team are trying to do is make that proof of work as quick as possible, right? Give you the guidance and all the rest of it. But um, to avoid those large purchases at high prices and to instead allocate those to lower prices and conversely, allocate those sells to a higher level, that's where these tools come into effect. Because essentially, the way I DCA, right? I, I primarily DCA for the same reason I don't trade keeps my mind clear, keeps my sat balance going up. But I will use the tools I have. If it looks pretty sketchy out there, I'll just hold my DCA until it's looking a little bit brighter, right? And generally speaking, you get a 20, 30, 40% discount. And it just over, if you do that DCA with that extra edge tapped in, suddenly you can start adding 10, 20, 30% to every single purchase. And you start actually, exactly. Your dollar cost averaging your smarts as well as just your BTC. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, really good way to look at it. We we also appreciate the the discipline in your analysis because you're right. Making price predictions, it's like taking a risky shot at glory. And if you happen to be one of the last men standing, it gets a lot of attention. But it's probably not rooted in the best principles. And it probably also doesn't like if if your aim is to be altruistic and give your talents to those who are trying to accumulate as much Bitcoin as they can calling massively high numbers probably is an additive to people's process on the way up or down, you know? No, totally. And and like, that's the thing. What I really hope that Bitcoiners by and large do is never allow stock to flow to ever happen again. Yeah. Like we had some very, very bright analysts, including myself, screaming about how much of a scam that model was for a long time. But we had all the big um, podcasts had, had Plan B on to talk about it. And it hurt a lot of people. I don't think people realize, I mean, and psychologically, the reason why May, I think, was the bear market start, two things, on-chain activity cratered. And we all, same as the 2017 top, actually, almost identical. The All of the bull market activity just evaporated in one candle, just gone. And think about how many Bitcoiners were expecting 150, 200K, and they got 29. Yeah. And that just why, and most of them, we don't realize because we've been here for a long time. Most people bought 50,000 plus. They weren't buying at 10. They had no buffer. So plan B, 
harmed this market in a way that I, I'm still, I still feel like I'm cleaning up that mess. I still get people coming to me and saying, I just don't understand like what, what happened. And you explain it to them, they go, right, makes sense. But we as Bitcoiners need to make sure that that never happens again. Mm. Yeah, that was insane. Yeah, to pivot here, and I can already tell at the 40-minute mark, we're going to go long because we're about to pivot into a giant rabbit hole. I'm going to start it this way. We're going to talk about the uniqueness of Bitcoin, maybe how it compares to Ethereum. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, walk us through your journey. I pay a lot of attention to you on Twitter, um, and I've paid some attention to what I perceive to be a little bit of a change in tone, but I love your tone when you embark on this discussion. You put out a video on some of your concerns about the Ethereum merge a few months ago. Not only what was in it, was I impressed, but, it, but it's the way that you communicate it, the, the humility. So walk us through how that's been for you. Where did you start in this space? Kind of where are you now? Take that wherever you want. Sure. So yeah, I mean, um, uh, as most people do, um, when you come into this market, everything looks the same, right? Uh, Bitcoin is Ethereum is whatever, right? It's all it's all a price. Um, so my very very first, not even, not only just buy in this space, but my first investment ever, uh, no stocks, very very first asset that I ever bought um, was Ethereum at the January 2018 peak on Coinbase, and it's even worse than that because when I was doing my taxes, um, the the buy that I had, Coinbase had an extra fee for Australian dollars. So my buy price is actually above the top wick. So talk about top <laughs> buying. You actually can't get more top than that. So anyway, um, that was my first buy. And um, through 2018, it was just shitcoinville, right? Spreadsheet, 50,000 coins. They've all got $10 allocated to them. They all go down to one cent. Um, but Ethereum was one of these things that like, I, I could see what was going on and it was it was interesting, Right. Um, I discovered the economics and the monetary side in 2018, 2019, late 2018, 19. And that's when I pretty much went down the path of being like, all right, Bitcoin is, this This is what it's all about. Now, from that point, um, that was kind of my peak maximalist phase. Um, then I went through a phase of actually exploring other projects and just understanding things like governance, security, things like that. Um, and I started to get an appreciation for, okay, I don't think that it's just Bitcoin. But also the trade-offs matter a lot. And anyway, Ethereum is one of these very interesting assets where I have flip-flopped for years, right? Trying to understand this doesn't make sense. And I, I wrote papers about this in, back in 2019. I'm like, I can see how the, the, the changing of the monetary policy doesn't make sense. The, the, there, there was lots of elements. The governance layer was a bit captured. There was also just the, the sheer fact that the thing is not going to be able to scale um, because of blockchain mechanics and the, the you know the trilemma and things like that. So I was constantly just back and forth being like, but, but there's these smart guys who just seem to get it. And I keep trying to work out what the final solution is. Anyway, um, then the, you start getting, I mean, th then the whole DeFi summer thing blows up, right? That, that was June or July, whatever it was, 2020. And there's no question, right? When you look at that stuff, um, things like Compound, the Compound is a fascinating protocol because you can just put money in one side and borrow from another. And the whole thing's collateralized. You get automatically liquidated. And as credit to showing that these things actually work, you saw all the Celsius and all these bodgy guys, they had to go and close out their DeFi loans first. Why? Because it's indiscriminate. I don't care who you are. It's going to liquidate you if your price goes below that level. Now, that's not perfect because there's two elements that make DeFi work that I think we just have to all accept are not, cannot, and probably won't ever be decentralized. And that's okay. 
right? You can have a system that's not as decentralized. The problem is you have to apply the right tool for the right job. And that tool is not money, right? You cannot be centralized and be base level money. So the two things that are that have always, well, let's say three things that have always struck me as long-term problems for this industry. And, and by this industry, crypto and Bitcoin, right? The crypto industry. Um, there is the price oracle problem. Blockchains do not know the price of anything. Now, you could argue that they could do with Uniswap, right? Because you've got a pool. The problem is you now have a single attack vector that someone can go in with enough liquidity and blow out the peg. Mm -hmm. So the Oracle problem remains very, very pr uh, problematic. And the reason why is that you need a centralized server who takes prices from Coinbase and Binance and BitMEX and averages them out. And then you've got a nice stable index. It's very, very hard to manipulate. Now, that's fine to manage on a central server. If you start pulling things, like if you can only point on-chain sources, essentially Uniswap becomes your attack. And it's all about finding what is the weakest link. Now, if the Oracle gets captured, someone can just change the price and liquidate everyone, right? And if you think about it, the bounty, every if every single system is using the same Oracle, the bounty is all of DeFi. Totally. Every single coin that's locked totally. in DeFi, that's your target. Yeah, that is a great point, yes. The more useful it gets, the larger the bounty. I want to make sure that we are on the same page and everyone understands what you're talking about here. So the Oracle is what tells the protocol what's reality, right? Exactly. It tells it what the price is of reality. I just want to get back to this. So this, the attack vector would be so you could somehow manipulate the Oracle to change the price, manipulate it, and then position yourself in these markets to either to be on the correct side of that trade in order to just crush. So let's let's say Bitcoin's at 50,000. You, you deposit one BTC, um, it's worth 50 grand. You borrow 30 grand, right? right? So if Bitcoin falls down, I don't know, just 30%, you're going to get liquidated. So what happens is the guy can just get in there and if they manage to change the price of the Oracle, whether by, a, you know, let's say there's a billion dollars worth of coins that they could buy at that liquidation price. Mm -hmm. If it only costs them 900 million to push the Oracle price down and they get 100 million as profit, it's a worthy trade, right? right. Yep. So that's a problem that, to, to date, it's like the Oracle problem, feeding external data into a computer system is an unsolved computer science problem. So that's the first one. Second one is the absolute reliance on centralized stablecoins. Mm. The entire system only works. We saw this with Luna. These algorithmic stablecoins are not going to be stable because every, every price currency peg in human history ever has always been broken. There will be a George Soros out there who will break it. So thus, the only way that this system works is with centralized stablecoins. Now, that's fine. The problem is that you have to accept that that is your weakest link. We're trying to find what is the weakest link in the system. And if you must have centralized stablecoins, you then look at, and, and I, I raised this in the video, they recently had the merge. Well, what happens if the, there's a fork down the road somewhere, a fork choice that is, well, we have, you know, and we're seeing errors of this. You have to be, you know, you've got to share your IP address or you must be KYC or any any of these, what sounds extreme, but do we think the government's not going to fight this stuff? They absolutely are. For you sure. want to move dollars around the system? They're going to bless the stable coin. They'll, they will bless USDC and say, this this is our, you know, approved stable coin. But if you want to use it, we need to know who you are. And institutions and banks who are required for this whole thing to work also need to know who their counterparties are for legal right. reasons. And that's going to be the Achilles heel of this entire thing. Because, exactly. And this is the, the debate around the fork choice, which is that let's imagine that we get to that fork in the road, which is 
which side are you going to choose? Are you going to be on the rebel Ethereum side or are you going to be on the compliant Ethereum side? Now, if you choose the compliant Ethereum side, all of your DeFi protocols will continue to work. Your stablecoins will continue to work. <laughs> um, everything will press on as it currently stands. You just need to KYC. To which, I mean, you guys surely know that most people, when you talk about privacy, like, but I'm not doing anything wrong. That right. mindset. And if you add that mindset with, by the way, you're also not going to lose everything you own and your protocol will keep working as designed, 99% of people are going to go, yeah, sounds good. Mm -hmm. The other side is you can keep your rebel Ethereum, but you're going to have to slash Coinbase. You're going to have to slash Binance. You have to slash Lido. All of your stable coins are going to go to zero because Circle will not honor a coin that's on a non-compliant chain. So you're going to have to sacrifice pretty much everything that makes your blockchain functional and work. And a lot of people say, but that's the risk that you know we're willing to take. It. It's like, that's fine. But how well do you think that's going to go down with everyone else? Do you think retail is ever going to come back to you when you slash their Coinbase balance? No. Like, it, not, none of, like it's just not a real scenario. We can envision it all we want, but it, it's, it's just a really uncomfortable spot to be in. So as a result, because DeFi only works with centralized stable coins, essentially they have now got fork choice over the protocol because if they don't, if they say we're not valuing USDC on this fork, good luck keeping that fork alive. Oh man, this point is such an important point. The stable coin influence over the outcome of these hard forks is really one of the first things that really clicked for me. And I think it came from Lynn Alden's an economic analysis of Ethereum piece where she really deep dived on how much the whole quote unquote DeFi ecosystem is completely reliant on these things. And and I, you've done a great job of, of reminding us, like, who's the end user? If I remember right on your video, you use like little Timmy as your example throughout. Guess whose balance is on Binance or Coinbase? It's the yeah. average Joe. It's the average Huckleberry that doesn't really fully understand this space. It's a massive wayward incentives. I mean, we actually just saw that, right? So if um, FTX, FTX just wiped out a bunch of little Timmies. You're telling me that yep. the Ethereum community is going to wipe out little Timmy's on Coinbase and expect people to ever buy your token again? It's just a very, very bold claim. Personally, I kind of want to see the movie because I, I, I think they might try and do it, but I don't think it's going to end well. Yeah. Um, the, the other Lynn piece that I actually have out in front of me highlighted into an oblivion is her piece that she just released titled The Problems with DeFi and Crypto. I need to read that. If, if any of what we just explored, which is super significant, went over your head, we're going to link Checkmate's video on the Ethereum merge, which explores a lot of this stuff in the show notes. And then I'm also going to link the two articles I just mentioned by Lynn that are well worth your read. The other thing that I think is worth you enumerating for us is the difficulty of even running an Ethereum node. Can you peel back that onion? Yeah, yeah. So, and and that's that's actually the third pillar. Um, so I mentioned there was the, th the three. There's the Oracle problem, the stablecoin problem, and then there's the look. Um, I think Bitcoiners give Ethereum a little bit too much grief about node size. That said, it's not not a problem, right? It is a problem. But it's not as um, it's much more nuanced than what most bitcoins. Most bitcoins just say, "Oh, it's it's Vitalik's masternode." It's it's not. So, um, some some anecdotal um, information here. Um, I've tried to run. Uh, in fact, I, I put a tweet out the other day. Um, pretty much, I'm at the point now where when I reboot a laptop, one of the first pieces of software that goes on is a Bitcoin node. Now, Bitcoin nodes, whether on your own personal hardware with a Raspberry Pi or your laptop, is trivial to get set up, trivial. And very rarely do I come into any kind of problem. 
I have tried running an Ethereum node about three times. Um, the only one I've ever managed to get working was using a quick sync function, which is essentially goes to a checkpoint, downloads, and then it, it's, it's like a fast sync. Now, that's not really what you should be doing. You should really be downloading and validating the whole chain. So right. the, the, the hard reality is that if you run more stuff on your blockchain network, as Ethereum does, Bitcoin, all it does is move UTXOs around, right? That's it. Um, it's basically a big database. Um, what the Ethereum is doing is obviously orders of magnitude more complex. So the trade-off is that your data footprint is much larger, the amount of work your computer needs to do. You can't use a hard drive. You need to use an SSD. Um, it will consume a large portion of your computer. And further to that, there's a lot of maintenance required. So when they do a hard fork, you need to have upgraded your software before that. Um, and, you know, you, people can poke around. The, the, the trade-off with a hard fork is that you kind of need coordination. So there's a bit of a centralizing force there. Um, but simultaneously... You know, if you have to keep hard forking your software, you're adding technical requirement to your end users. Now, I, I mentioned the video as well, Little Timmy. Little Timmy doesn't run a node. I've been using Ethereum for, I don't know, five years, thereabouts. I have never, ever, ever connected my MetaMask to anything other than I've tried to connect to my own node, but the, the, that node was so heavy on my laptop that I just couldn't do anything else. So, sorry, the node's got to go. Um, MetaMask just it, it you know you can run your, your ledger all you want but MetaMask is connecting to a someone else's node. We see this across um, a lot of elements of it. Um, you know most Ethereum nodes uh, run through some kind of data provider like AWS or Infura, blah blah blah. So there is a force that pushes these nodes onto the onto the cloud. The data footprint is heavier um, in terms of maintenance. Um, Basically, there's. I, I see lots of people talk about this, particularly data providers. Um, Ethereum's node requires a lot more work. You need to be a bit more hands-on, need to be more technical. You need to be upgrading all the time. Um, Bitcoin nodes just keep chugging along, right? They just keep chugging along. Even even a glass node. Maintaining the Ethereum node is a process. We have multiple Ethereum nodes with different clients, and uh, keeping them all operational all the time. You have to literally be tracking Twitter to see when a hard fork's coming up, which yeah. is a bit of a challenge. Bitcoin, you just pff, set and forget. The thing just, just ticks over, and that, that's a common story. So um, that node, call it centralization force, is a trade-off, but it's it's also it, it shows you that there's actually elements there. There's a few more layers like MEV and stuff, but I'll pause there. So just a couple of things on top of ETH before we move on from it. Uh, two things I think that are important for people to keep in mind and think about especially if they're involved or want to be involved in ETH in any way. The staking of ETH, number one, is fairly complex as far as I understand. And because of that, people have basically used centralized parties, which are Coinbase, Lido, a few others. They're basically centralized entities that can make the choices for you as far as your staked ETH. So the first question I have on that is, because of these centralized third parties that are doing the staking for people, do you think it's accurate to say that ETH is effectively captured at this point? Um. Yeah, it's, it, it's a really interesting question. Um, the answer is we don't know. The same way that we don't know that Bitcoin is secure, this is, it's because it's, it's all probabilistic, show me right. the data. Mm -hmm. Based on empirical data, it is. Right, but I would say, I mean, if you were going to say, you know, probabilistically, uh, would, do you think it's a fair statement to say that it's much more likely completely centrally controlled at this point than it is that Bitcoin is not secure? Yeah, I, I would say that the um, if you look at the trajectory pre and post proof of stake, 
there's no question that it is heading towards centralization. Now, yeah. what you have to look at here is it comes down to block construction, block production. So little Timmy is going to seek out the most convenient option because that's just what human beings do. This is not a like this is not a blockchain thing. This is just yes. a human thing. People want to delegate risk. They, I mean, thirty-two ETH. Even now, it's thirty-two thousand dollars. It's a lot of money. The vast, the, the vast majority of people. That's a huge amount of money. Now, now you're going to ask that guy to maintain an Ethereum node. By the way, it's not just one node now. There's two nodes. You have to do execution and client. So there's two, two uh, execution and consensus. So you actually need to run two sets of nodes. You need to keep those up to date through all the hard forks, um, and you need to put thirty-two thousand dollars on your laptop have it live and be quite confident that you're not going to fuck up security and someone's going to steal it. Now, most people use the word password one, two, three, four as their password. So like you just have to be re realistic and say, we expect that the vast majority of people will delegate that risk to Coinbase and Binance. Yeah. Now, um, that, and, and actually I would go one step further following the FTX collapse, the probability that we're going to start seeing a, a wall get built between exchange and custodian, I think, is high. So now you've got Coinbase. Coinbase custody may actually need to be severed off as a whole mm. different business. And Coinbase custody, like um, BitGo or, or Prime Trust, those entities will custody coins. The exchange just interfaces and accesses them. So you're separating those powers. Now, that means that you're going to get Ethereum ETFs, which are all going to have coins at the same custodian. Like that, that security mindset is going to be a further centralizing force. Now, where I think a lot of Bitcoiners get it wrong is that just having all of that stake doesn't necessarily give you control over governance, right? Because it still remains a more, the, the governance of the hard forks and things is a bit more nuanced. But then you bring in the stablecoin problem that we discussed before. So the real risk, the actual real risk here is the centralization of block production and construction. So this is where MEV comes in, which stands for maximum extractable value. Used to be minor extractable value, but it's maximum now. Um, basically, if you if imagine all of your Bitcoin miners were one entity, they can choose that transaction over there. OFAC or the government has told me don't don't mine that transaction. So if all of your all of your blocks are being produced by the same guy, then your censorship will be one hundred percent. As soon as they say we're not, we're blacklisting that transaction. It's done. Can't can't get it in. If one miner is still out there operating and they mine 1% of the blocks, well, every 100 blocks, that guy might get his transaction in, but he's got to pay a higher and higher fee. So because the basically you've got two pools of block space, you've got the compliant censored block space and you've got the uncompliant rebel block space. Now, what has happened is they've got this thing called, and again, it's a feature of Ethereum is it's quite complex. There's lots of layers to this. They've got a thing called... Um, Flashbots, or it, it's basically a, there's a general term, but basically someone else builds the block, and these guys are specialists, right? This is the node, the node that builds the block. What they're doing is they're looking at Uniswap trades, and they're going, "Hang on, we can front run that transaction." They're looking at someone who's getting liquidated over there. We can slot ourselves in because remember, a block is a piece of code. It runs linearly from top to bottom. If I execute this transaction before this one, and then run this one, and you order them in a certain way you can extract extra money out of the system, right? So it's basically paying, taking a tax, so to speak, on usage. Now, that's a very specialized role. Little Timmy ain't going to do it. Coinbase might do it, probably won't, because they can now delegate to someone else. So the blocks are being largely produced by 
less and less entities, Flashbots being one of them, and that particular entity is the most profitable because the better you get at this, the more specialized you get, the more money right. you make, the more Coinbase can lift their APR button and Coinbase is now more competitive than Binance, customers go to Coinbase. So what you end up with is a system where you're going to get very few staking providers, which is the expected result for convenience. You've got specialization in the block production space, which is MEV. That is a centralizing force. And you know, if we if we there's there's a website probably people seen with the red and the green bars, you can see that a large proportion of these blocks are now being produced by OFAC compliant systems. And you just have to ask yourself, if you were Brian Armstrong at Coinbase with the US government peering over your shoulder every single day, doing and you it's not even about the fact that like if you chose to not use the OFAC compliant one, it's not even that what you want to do, even if they're less profitable. Imagine telling the US government that you chose to ignore their sanctions deliberately. No, you're going to pick the OFAC compliant one. So if you believe that exchanges are going to be regulated, if you believe that little Timmy wants convenience and risk delegation, then the probability is that that block space of rebel, rebel scum is going to continue to shrink and shrink and shrink until there's just, I mean, people are not going to wait six months. And again, most of us aren't OFAC censored, but what if we are, right? You just start to see this game theory run forward, and yeah. then you add in USDC being able to choose fork choice. You're like, man, there's just there's a lot of layers that are hard to come back from. That's the problem. A point worth making at this juncture, checkmate, is that magnificent, cool, decentralized protocols can become functionally completely centralized. I mean, to zoom outside of crypto, let's think of SMTP, like the simple mail transfer protocol. It might have been decentralized at one point. It no longer is. We explored this with Matt Hill when he was on here recently. And and to get back to nodes, because, yeah, maybe it's oversimplified, but it's it's an incredibly important place to start when we contemplate the meaning and significance of decentralization. And it really comes down to how thin is the hardware spread? If we're just picking on Ethereum as one example, and there's many <clears throat> examples, there's, there's much more low-hanging fruit. If we talked about Solana, it'd be easier to, to blow this thing sky high. But comparing the difficulty that you just uh, walked us through of running an, an Ethereum node and then juxtaposing that with running a Bitcoin node for listeners that aren't running a Bitcoin node, I mean, it's, it's startlingly easy, as you already hinted at. I mean, trivial. Raspberry Pis are way more expensive than when, when we spun them up, but we spent $150 on hardware. You can it, We're using Start9 now. You can flash this thing on here, basically set go, and it's up and running with, for me at least, based on the device I've been running, almost perfect uptime. It's an SD flash. That's it. Plug in. Totally doable mm -hmm. for a firefighter, right? And when, when we think through the implications of back to the whole money discussion, right? And I love this phrase by Joe Carlosare because we asked him, I don't know, months ago when he was on here, are you a maximalist, right? And he said, I'm a Bitcoin money maximalist. And I totally, when we're, when we're having a conversation about rewriting the fundamentals of base layer value transfer of homo sapien, you're going to need a protocol with hardware spread thin that can remain robustly decentralized, not for years, not for decades, potentially centuries. Right. Start asking yourself, can my protocol accomplish that? And if the answer is no, that's probably not going to be the long-term solution for money. And this is actually, I, of all the things, this is probably the single most important point. Um, because even though 
even though some of the things I've said are, are critical of Ethereum, I still believe it's going to exist for a long time. And the important nuance here is that right tool, right job. It is not the right tool for base layer money. It's just not. What it is a, not I can't say the best or the right tool, but certainly a uh, more correct tool, Bitcoin is not very good for Uniswap. It's not very good for Compound. In fact, it's horrible at both of those things. Ethereum's great for it, right? So um, even then, there, there, there's scalability challenges and blah, blah, blah. But if your weakest link, if your weakest link is your centralized stablecoin, you don't need Bitcoin security. You just yes. don't. You don't need Bitcoin's level of decentralization because your whole attack vector is USDC. So I think this is actually a narrative that I maybe suspect will take a bit of root. I think it's going to be very uncomfortable for um, a lot of Ethereans, but essentially accepting that, that, that a level of centralization is actually okay. I think Lynn Alden has actually also um, uh, postulated this. The concept is that Ethereum can go much more down the compliant, um, you know, Basically, if they allow a little bit of capture and they actually give it to the US government in you know private enterprise and whatever else and allow them to do their thing, price of this thing is going to go to the moon, yeah. right? There's no question. And that's that's fine. That is an investment. Good for you. What you're essentially investing in is something that's just not going to be as decentralized. And I, I, my honest view is I think the ship has sailed for recovery on this um, because there's just too many layers. There are two, in yeah. fact, there's only one way that they actually solve the centralization, decentralization problem. They need to have a governance fork that USDC wants to implement that the community doesn't and they must rebel off. It's the only way. They have to rebel off um, and it will be nuclear. It would be the equivalent of Bitcoin changing the ASIC algorithm. That's the, essentially the scale of it. Um, that's, I think, the only way. If they did that, there's no question. Rebel Ethereum will return to being a more decentralized system. Just don't think it's going to survive is a problem. I think um, we'd be remiss if we didn't swing this back to Bitcoin before we finish up. And we do not want to let Bitcoin necessarily off the hook easy. I mean, we've beaten up ETH, yeah. kind of given it a hard time, which it does deserve. Um, you know, we don't, I don't think any of us want to see people failing overall, although we do want Bitcoin to succeed. Ethereum does position itself and does have some interesting features that definitely could be used in the future. And watching it become a centralized entity, watching it basically turn into the system that it has been created to disseminate itself from is very disappointing, I think, for people that are actually you know pro-freedom and pro-decentralization in the world. 100%. As far as Bitcoin is concerned, though, let's do a little bit of steel manning and talk about what are some of the viable risks that you see uh, for Bitcoin in the near future. For sure. Especially after this whole FTX blow up, we're going to see a lot more uh, politicians trying to get their hands and regulate anything and everything they can. Elizabeth Warren is hot to trot right now, and she wants she wants heads to roll. I saw um I saw a good tweet about um, Elizabeth Warren actually she's I can't remember what the numbers are but you know she's put forward like three hundred bills and has like two of them that's ever got passed so her hit rate's like point one six percent or something anyway yeah um no and I think this is something that Bitcoiners um need to do a lot more of is actually looking at the uh, the fallbacks and the, the the pitfalls so there's a couple of things that I've got on my radar um one is the risk to self custody right a sixty one oh two type event um, which I think is going to be a hot button issue, right? So there is the, um, there is the you can no longer self-custody. And I think that's extremely dangerous. I would put that into the, the way I describe that. It's the goldification of Bitcoin. 
which we saw. We got a flavor of that. What happens if your paper derivatives get so large? Um, and we mentioned the, the scam pump before. There's no question that a big reason we didn't get higher is because there was too many people speculating on not just derivatives and um, futures, but also altcoins, right? That sucks money away. Speculative capital comes away from BTC, rightly or wrongly. So there's that risk. The other one, which is kind of in tandem with that, is the privacy element. Bitcoin has really, really piss poor privacy. Um, there are tools. There are the wasabis and the um, and the whirlpools and join markets. How many people use it? It's bad. Yeah, it's it's hard to stay private on Bitcoin. Yes. In, just as a, as a regular bloke, I'm going to admit it. It's really challenging. Josh and I talk about this a lot. Well, it's it's challenging not only because I mean the it's not challenging to do it to do like say whirlpool yes. on Sparrow. Very simple. The problem is not doxing yourself in the future. Because if you ever mix that with some other Bitcoin that you bought KYC'd, the whole thing is fucked. You might as well have not bothered. And further to that, I think the, probably the biggest hang up is just the looming threat of if I mix this, I can't sell it. Yes. That, that right there, that's the kill shot. So then and you kind of step down these risks, right? And this is what Ethereum does a little bit better than us, right? Um in the event where you have an FTX, in the event where you have a black market requirement, right, where the world kind of says, sorry, no more self-custody, privacy is, you know, you can't do this, that, and the other, which Tornado Cash gives you a bit of a flavor of. There's all these things where you could go down this path. Ethereum, you would still be able to withdraw your coins, borrow money, move it around the system. The challenge is that they could, USDC could say, sorry, we're going to block that transaction. But you could still... You'd have more mobility, let's say. Let's say, Bitcoin, you're a lot more limited. We have very, very few decentralized exchange options. We have very like, but again, what are you swapping in and out of? That, that's kind of the problem. So, um, in, in many ways, it's kind of the same risk that gold went down, which is that we just turned Bitcoin into another fiat currency, right? Gold is essentially just another fiat because it trades with mostly paper derivatives, and um, if you ever want to get it, it's you know your GLD ETF. People don't bury gold coins in their backyard. Much, much easier to put coins in your backyard. Um, but if we don't have that somewhat decentralized um, or at least systems that can allow us to be more flexible um, and transact peer-to-peer, that's really the risk. Um, now, there, there's, there's certain options there. Like, um, you know, you've got things like RSK and there's the concept of drive chains and things like that. Um, I think what I like about any one of those solutions or multiple of them you know, ZK, um, what are they called? ZK rollups and things. There was a paper written on that recently. There's trade-offs in the sense that it will potentially introduce a bit of MEV. But what you want to do is push all of that computation, all of the Ethereum stuff. You want it to be somewhere that can just get chopped off, blown up, go to zero, and Bitcoin keeps chugging yes. along. So whatever you do, don't impact the base layer to the point where it's irrecoverable. But I think we should be, as a community, pushing that stuff away but to a layer and actually promoting the innovation. Because the thing is, a lot of people may not see what comes out of it. We may just solve some of these problems and people are going to say, oh, it's not decentralized, but we've just discussed that Ethereum is able to build this stuff. It's right. not as decentralized, but that's just fine because yeah. your base layer is the stable coin anyway. So right. be as decentralized as the stable coin. This is, a, this is such a key thing though for someone that's newer to the space. It's that for for the main Bitcoin value proposition and the, and the truly catastrophic bullish scenario for Bitcoin to play out, and that's, you know, as we alluded to, rewriting how money works, 
that base layer has to stay totally immutable, completely decentralized, and it needs to be able to run on a node in a firefighter's basement, right? And for for those things to be true, that means that that base layer, that protocol has serious limitations, with, which we've just, we just picked at, which means there's been a lot of, but there needs to continue to be more of significant innovation, which... In some senses, you could say, at least for me, in the five years I've been in, I, I could, in, in some regards, if I'm being critical, say is lacking. I'm encouraged to see more venture capital funding coming into Bitcoin only, but this is something we need to keep harping on because the protocol stack needs to grow and fill out for this thing to to fill in some of these holes that that are real. I don't know if I completely agree with you on that. I think compared to when we started in 2017... Lightning Network was basically three nodes connected to each other in 2017. It is now thousands, thousands of nodes. And we have things like uh, Taproot that are coming on around and second, third tertiary layers, Fediment coming online too, that allows a lot more. Um, I mean, it's a more centralized system, but it's a layer on top that allows people to be more anonymous as far as their uh, transactions are concerned. So yeah, I do wish there was more money and more movement on this, but there certainly is movement in the right direction from my perspective. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree. I'm just saying when you think about the amount of capital companies uh, efforts put in in the quote unquote crypto space, and then you you factor in how much of that's actually happened on Bitcoin, if I'm being critical, it pales in comparison. And yeah, there's a lot less suckers to be screwed on Bitcoin exactly. than there is in all these yeah. other cryptos. Yeah. You know? And actually, I'd even bring it back to another point here. Um, so there's, when you look at the Ethereum stack, right, which is kind of our best case study for what you can build, how much of that stuff is going to stick around, right? How much of it is actually in demand and useful? And personally, when I kind of strip back all the onions and I look at what is actually the most useful stuff um, and being someone who's used quite a lot of it, really, there's kind of three buckets of things that I found to be useful that would actually, you know, could be built somewhere on Bitcoin. The first one is something like a Uniswap, right? Just a very, very simple automated market maker. Now, that design can be built using other methods. Lightning Network is maybe because it's still channels going in, but you're going to, it's kind of going to be a, um, what would you describe it as? almost like a decentralized BitMEX, right? There's, there, there's solutions where you can have Bitcoin as the central liquidity. Um, you could send, for example, um, it will be centralized in the sense that you need the same clearing houses and all that. But imagine if you could send Apple stock and out comes Turkish Lira on the other side of the world, right? A giant liquidity pool that's kind of what Jack Mallers is doing. Um, so there is that element, but we accept that there's that, that centralization. There's things like Compound, which is that money market type fund, right? The repo market is essentially what Compound is. Banks put their securities in and they borrow dollars. Banks put their dollars in and they take back securities, right? So Compound is essentially what the repo market is. Um, probably not useful that much for the average punter. Very, very useful for the big banks. So I can see all that kind of stuff getting built out as a, um, as infrastructure. Um and the other one is, oh, no, actually, I've forgotten what the other one was. But anyway, they're kind of the two that at least stand out to me. Oh, um, um, automation of just general finance. So, for example, you've got like a, an ETF, right? We've seen many of these index products get built on an Ethereum, right? It's going down the path of like security tokenization. That, I think, is probably going to be a thing. We're probably going to see clearing houses 
get built using blockchain technology. Will the average punter need to be using his own wallet to interact with it? Probably not. Most of this stuff will probably be into bank um, uh, backend, kind of backend type work. Um, they're kind of some of the things I can see being uh, being built and useful, but for the most part, um, and actually you can see this in the data. I've been poking around a lot of our Ethereum data of late. Uh, and actually we put out a paper when we released some of these metrics. Imagine like a zero to 100% how much of Ethereum transactions or gas consumption was DeFi, NFTs, stablecoins, ETH transfers, blah, blah, blah. And what you see is these like, you know, ERC-20s blow up in 2017 and then evaporate to nothing. DeFi blows up in 2020, evaporates down to not much. Um, stablecoins, very consistent base. Always there, just continuing to do their job. Um, vanilla ETH transactions, NFTs, massive peak, 38% of all gas, now back down to like 8%. So you see these booms and busts of innovation, but so far, stablecoins is actually the only one that's kind of stuck the test of time. And you know they're three of the top six assets in the space. So you can see those demand vectors building out. As we, uh, as we round this out, I want to hear you. Uh, I know during the video, you talked a little bit about how you have structured your crypto portfolio. What percentage of your holdings are Bitcoin versus Ethereum and any assorted other uh, altcoins you're interested in? Just curious on how uh, how much resolve you have in Bitcoin versus everything else. So essentially, when you give me ETH BTC at, at 0.08, I'm taking it all. So I'm fully divested from ETH at this point in time. Gotcha. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, basically when I saw the response to the video, um, what I basically saw is that there was no interest. I mean, uh, you know, th th there's certain podcasts out there that would have been a, th the right place to have actually talked about it. Just again, even if I'm dead wrong, please, someone just, just blow me out of the water. N nothing would have appeased me more than for, for someone to have essentially said, every single point is wrong and here's why. And I basically got nothing. So, you know, th there's podcasts out there that would debate a catfish on, on, on anything it had to say <laughs> and it just wouldn't touch it. So when I, and, and, you know, a lot of the responses that I got were, I've never thought about this. That's like, thank you for giving me that view. And there was others who were just like, you're just a fucking crook. There was, like there was no... There was no um, rebuttal to the argument. It was all ad hominem. So mm. when I kind of looked at that and I saw the response, I thought, all right, I, I, I gut feel tells me I'm probably more right than wrong here. Um, again, more than happy to hear any kind of rebuttal that just blows it out of the water. But um, it was kind of the final nail. You know, I told you I was flip-flopping for many, many years. I basically saw that there was actually no desire to change it. So at that point in time, bang, goes from a, uh, from a potential to purely a price trade um, so essentially, uh, and, uh, uh, Rodolfo, Rodolfo were like this, my cold card is essentially hundred percent. Beautiful. <laughs> um, now what I will say, what I will say though, um, and this is what Bitcoiners don't talk about. The Ethereum trade was by far the easiest way for me to stack sats. So that's the other thing is that it's outperformance. You have to give it that credit. And I, I've been talking about Bitcoin dominance of late. You've, you know, people like to use the trading view version. Don't use the trading view version. It's dog shit. Absolutely wrong. Um, when you look, the right way to look at Bitcoin dominance is using realized cap, right? Value every coin when they last moved. That means that Ripple, when they, they pre-mine 100% of their coins, they've never moved. They're in escrow. So they have a price of zero. So you have to value every coin at the price when it moved because that's a buy and a sell as best as we can measure it. When you plot out dominance in terms of realized cap, um, you may have seen Willy Woo's been, been posting his chart where it shows all the coins are just smeared down to zero. 
you essentially get to see that there's Bitcoin, which is growing in dominance since the 2017 peak. And there's Ethereum, which has essentially gained a market share of about 20% and held it. So um, even within that context, it, it, it you know, um, of all of the assets that exist, basically Bitcoin and Ethereum are the only two that have a genuine sustained user base. Um, they're probably both going to exist whether you like it or not. The trick is to learn from one side rather than just say it's a scam. The mission is yeah. actually to look at what they do well, look at what they don't do so well, and build your arguments accordingly. Yeah, we, we resonate with that point of view. Indoctrination and cults are built in environments where you tell people what they're not allowed to go explore and learn about. 100%. We're not here to pump Ethereum, but if you're, if you're around other maxis that tell you you're not allowed to go learn about Ethereum... Tell them to go fuck themselves because that's the whole part of intellectual integrity. Totally. The things you disagree with even the most in life should be some of the things you pay most attention to and that you seek out the, the most thoughtful thinkers on that side of the argument. And that, that's what the whole journey is about. Um, so if you've never flipped the stone over, go for it. There's no way that I would have the, the, the level of detail that I know about Ethereum if I didn't use it for years. It's the only way you can ever do it. Like experience is everything. Yeah, we, we've made a couple good observations about DeFi in general and, and critique any of this if I'm not characterizing it right. But a lot of what you just said is that DeFi's got some limitations, right? And, and one thing I think of back to this Lynn article I just, I just read is that a lot of current DeFi, right, in, let's say in the Ethereum ecosystem is a centralized product whose liabilities are bare assets, right? But the, 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 the thing at the base of it is a centralized, say, stable coin. Or at its most dark, it's reliant on pump and dump completely useless tokens. What you've sort of insinuated is that there, it, there's already being built and there's room to build decentralized finance with base collateral and liquidity that's actually decentralized and on top of a protocol such that you don't need your own token there is a path forward that doesn't involve this degree of clownsmanship that we've seen over the last year with all these implosions. Yeah, and, and this is, I think this is an important, something I have certainly learned, um, particularly over the, probably the last year, um, and you guys have probably seen it, how many Bitcoin podcasts are now talking about you know mining and how proof of work energy, the actual physical imposition that Bitcoin has on the world has actual positive externalities on the physical world, Right. Um, there's the, the proof of stake side, which pretty much in, it's entirely internal. Everything happens internally. There's not an external. People have to literally pull fiat out of that system for it to have a positive externality. And this is something I've learned about Bitcoin recently is it's it, most, we don't do tokens, right? There's the, the, that, that's a funding mechanism. And I saw a great tweet by, uh, I think it was James Presswich, who's a very, very accomplished developer in Ethereum, but also Bitcoin. Um, so he basically said that a token is a something you do when you don't need to generate a business model, right? Um, generating a business model and making revenue is hard. If you issue a token, you no longer need to do that. You've essentially got your money. So the trade-off there is how do you fund work, right? We have to keep saying, you know, you've got to donate to Bitcoin core developers. Now, that's great because it maintains decentralization. It becomes a passion project rather than a, a commercial thing. Um, you remove the reliance on VCs, but you get less innovation, right? So there's less money flowing in. So the trade-off there is in the funding side of things. But when I look at the difference in psychology, this is something that clicked recently, is that Bitcoin improves people's meat space businesses. Mm. It improves our power distribution. It improves things in the real world, 
right? It, it, it's a base level that when people choose to operate on a Bitcoin standard, it changes their mindset, it changes the way that they behave, it changes their finances. That's the difference. Um, the Ethereum ecosystem is investing VC money to build stuff in the internal system. And that's generally manifested as a stock or a token. In the external world, Bitcoin is actually manifesting as physical representations of what sound money achieves. And I think that's a really important distinction um, in that it's actually creating businesses external and you can't map that on chain because it's not happening on chain. Bitcoin changed my life and the way that I look at things um, for the better. And I'm sure there's many, many people who have the same opinion. Um, you see these these mining farms setting up actual dams that power places in Africa. You can't do that with proof of stake. It's just not a thing. So that that is powerful. That's where I think the uh, the narrative needs to go. Yeah, yeah, gridless. They are literally doing that right now. Back to the the oracle problem we discussed. Like, where's where's truth coming from in the digital realm and within the protocol and. Bitcoin stands alone because it's tethered to unforgeable costliness, real world energy. And right. exactly. That's just a point that burns deeper year over year for me, man. It's 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 second system syndrome, right? It's so simple. It's so simple yeah. that every protocol that tries to replicate it just adds complexity and complexity and complexity, but they can't solve it because it was already solved. Right. God. Wow. I think uh, that last five minute rant you just went on there was stellar, man. Uh, that's certainly going to be at least part of that. It's going to be the intro for this. Um, I can't think of a better place to end it after hearing that either. So yeah, it's painful. I've got like eight more things I want to pick your brain on, but we're going to cut it at an hour and a half. This was uh, stellar. <laughs> Checkmate. Loved it. Yeah. Round two. Can you give us a handoff to yourself? Yeah, for sure. Um, so you'll find me on Twitter at, uh, at underscore checkmatey. Um, checkmate was taken, unfortunately. Um, uh, now, in terms of like, if I was to give you a handoff on, on, on things to do, um, uh, my view is that on-chain analytics gives the average pleb tools that they just never, never had, right? Um, you can visualize, learn about Bitcoin, understand how it works. Um, and, you know, if you're in the dollar cost average camp, as we were talking about before, there is edge that you can find being in the right place to dollar cost average and being in the right place to dollar cost exit, right? Um, there's tools you can do to actually make your your, your stack larger. Um, and a lot of them are really simple. So what we're really trying to do, and me and my guys at, uh, at Glassnode are trying to do, is make these things super accessible. Um, and we're putting them into, we, we, our big project recently has been dashboards. And the logic here is that there's like the right tool for the right job. You'll hear me say this a lot. We're trying to build the tools with the guidance so that you know when this happens, I'm going to go and check it out on this particular dashboard. So we're trying to give the plebs the tools that they need um, to essentially solve the problems that Bitcoin so um, throws at you. All right, go get the kite out, man. Stay careful out there. We need you on for round two as well. Totally. No, looking forward to it. We need some, uh, you need some videos, man. Get a GoPro on your head. We want to see it. Um, I'm contemplating getting the GoPro, actually. It's uh, it's one of those things I'm like, mm, Christmas is coming up. Maybe I'll treat myself. Yeah, do it. Thanks, Jack, mate. Appreciate you. All right, man. It was a pleasure. Thank you. No, nice one, fellas. Pre pleasure. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're appreciating our content here at Blue Collar Bitcoin, you can genuinely help us extend our reach by taking a minute to leave us a review on Apple, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or liking and subscribing on your app of choice. Josh and myself, Dan, are also active on Twitter, at blue underscore collar BTC, where we regularly post about Bitcoin, economics, food, and all sorts of other bullshit. 
If you want to send us questions or comments, our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, we take our partnerships on this show extremely seriously. We believe in these companies and their utility. Information, promo codes, and links to all our sponsors can be found down in the show notes. Take care, folks. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah.